Wait a second. You had three pairs of underwear for 16 to 18 months. You got to pack light. Okay, well, there's light and then there's naked. (laughs) And you can flip them inside out. But as you go along, you just, you know, a lot of the countries I went to were were developing countries and and clothes are cheap. So if I didn't need the clothes, I just toss them or, you know, donate t-shirts or whatever I needed to do. Don't worry, I didn't donate underwear. I was going to say, it was probably (laughs) just a waistband by the end of 18 months. (laughs) Welcome to the Mostly Money, Mostly Canadian podcast with your host, Preet Banerjee. Welcome back to Mostly Money, Mostly Canadian. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I'm talking to Salman Ahmed, a portfolio manager at Steady Hand Investment. The reason I'm laughing is I had a a brief tutorial on how to pronounce the name correctly because I butchered it the first time. So before I formally introduce Salman, I'm going to acknowledge a few people who left ratings and comments on iTunes about the show. C55CMT wrote in to say that he liked the earlier episodes better as he feels that the last few have been mostly interviews or ads for robo-advisors. And you know what? I appreciate the feedback. And while I can assure you that no one has been paid to be to be on the podcast, I understand your point of view as there have been three robo-advisor CEOs on the show in the last few months. So rest assured, there are many other topics planned beyond that for the future. And I do thank you very much for your feedback. James Tebay left a five-star review and some very nice comments, and James, I just want to say thank you very much for listening. If you have not done so yet, I really do appreciate you taking five seconds to leave a rating on iTunes, and if you want to take the additional time to write in a comment on top of that, please do know that I read every single one of them. And now, on with the show. Salman Ahmed is a portfolio manager with Steady Hand Investments. He works closely with the president of Steady Hand, Tom Bradley, who has been a guest on this show a long time ago, to monitor the firm's fund managers. And before that, Salman worked at Morningstar Canada as a fund analyst and later as associate director of Active Research. The word on the street is that he likes burgers almost as much as me. I highly doubt that. Salman, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I can't wait to talk about burgers. Okay, and we're going to do that towards yeah. the end of the show, but we have to get to the business first. So you are uh, you have listened to a few episodes on this podcast, so you know the standard format, which is we start with the Coles notes on your background from basically high school, yeah. again, Coles notes, to where you are today. You know, Tell us a little bit about your journey, so take it away. Yeah, sure. Um, I started... I went to high school. I, I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up in Surrey and an area in Surrey called Wally. When people hear about um, some gang wars going on in Vancouver, that's probably Wally, actually. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in, in, in a rough neighborhood. So you got your colors and everything? Yeah, and- I, I can't uh, <laughs> I can't flash the signs right now, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, it, was, it was awesome. Then went off to university. I went to Concordia University in Montreal, go Stingers. <laughs> And straight out of university, where I studied finance, I, I joined a consulting company called Mercer. There, I, I worked with pension plans, endowment funds, foundations, and helping them pick managers, develop their investment strategies, portfolio structures, etc. Um, 
uh, it was great, great learning experience. I was there from two, from the start of 2007 to, to mid 2009. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was through the financial crisis and, and I was fortunate enough. I was, I was doing well at Mercer, but I really felt like even though we were these educated financial professionals, we weren't having the impact that we needed to. Okay. Um, what, well, tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? Not, what, what kind of impact were you looking to have? Well, we want to go in and help these investment committees and boards make good investment decisions. Right. Uh, unfortunately, behavior kicks in mm. when, at the worst times. And so when the markets are falling, these otherwise smart investment committee members are wondering or second guessing their decisions. Right. And though we are, they're paying us to, to help them. Yeah. Often that advice goes ignored. And, and that's why I joined the consulting business. I thought we'd be having a great, great impact on, on investors, on those pensioners, on those people who would need money from those foundations and endowments. So uh, it was a little frustrating through that, but it gave me an appreciation for behavior. That right. It's not just, you know, the mom and pop that can struggle with uh, the bad news that goes on uh, that, that they hear every day on CNBC and Bloomberg. It's, it's everyone. Right. Um, there was a bit of a, uh, there was a health scare in my family. My, my dad was unwell. So I decided to take some time off mm-hmm. and I spent some time with him. And, and when you're sitting in a hospital for a couple of months with nothing but your own thoughts. You've, you've got some time to contemplate. And I decided two things. One was I was going to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate to have saved some money. And second, when I did return to the investment industry, I was going to do something where uh, there would be a bit of an advocacy role where I could have, I could talk, I could, I could have access to the end user and, and maybe help them make a good investment decision. Right. Um, so uh, my dad got well. Um, and off I went, I backpacked around the world for about 16, 18 months, something oh, like wow. that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. 16 to 18 months backpacking around the world. That's right. How many pairs of underwear did you bring with you? Uh, you, you only need three. Don't say commando. You only need three. You can flip <laughs> Wait them. Wait a in. second. You had three pairs of underwear for 16 to 18 you, months. You got to pack light. Okay. Well, for, there's light and then there's and naked. <laughs> and you can flip them inside out. <laughs> I keep trying to tell my girlfriend that. She's like, no, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Maybe you'll win the battle one day. <laughs> but as you go along, you just, you know, a lot of the countries I went to were were developing countries and and clothes are cheap. So <laughs> if I didn't need the clothes, I just toss them or, you know, donate t-shirts or whatever I needed to do. Don't worry. I didn't donate underwear. I was going to say it was probably <laughs> just a waistband by the yeah, end of 18 months. Right. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I just buy new ones along the way. It yeah. was it was great. Um, so I did that for a little while, and I and I, as I came back, I was I was really lucky. This is late 2010. Um, I I stumbled upon Morningstar. Mm-hmm. I stumbled upon it because a very good friend of mine, Manish Aurora, uh, who I'd worked with, he had a job offer from Morningstar, and he had a job offer from another firm. And he was contemplating who he should go to. Right. And he was running it by me. And I, for me, it was a no-brainer. Morningstar right. had that advocacy aspect to it. They, were, they had a great corporate culture, according to him. Um, and I gained a lot of insight into the firm as he was thinking things through. Right. Now, for other reasons, he decided to go for the other role. Mm-hmm. 
And I was lucky because Morningstar then reposted right. the role and I happened to apply. Well, not happened. I wanted to apply and it was the job I wanted. Uh, I knew about the firm. I wanted the role and I was very lucky. I was, I was interviewing with some other firms too, but, but I had my eyes set on, on the role. Okay. So let's, let's pause yeah. there and talk a little bit about Morningstar because, um, you know, we're both industry guys, so we know Morningstar, yeah. but there are a lot of people out there who may not know necessarily what Morningstar is, what they have done, how they've evolved over time. So, um, take a shot at explaining what Morningstar does. Uh, Morningstar does tons of things that you don't even know they're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you, at the base of it, they are they are a database firm. Mm-hmm. They collect and disseminate data on funds and other investments, stocks, bonds, mm-hmm. etc. So if you go to Google Finance and you put in a mutual fund, that feed in Google is coming from Morningstar. Right. Um, that's the core. But what most people know Morningstar for is the star rating. Right. When you go to your discount broker and you put in, I don't know, whatever fund you want to, you're going to see a bunch of stars on the top. And hopefully you're not going to make your investment decision based on those stars. It's a purely quantitative rating. Well, yeah, we we should talk about that because that's what a lot of people have ended up doing in the past. I heard all the time. Uh, I bought this fund because it was a five-star Morningstar rated fund. And that's all I need to know. That's good enough for me. So tell, tell, let's talk a little bit about the star rating. Sure. How, do you, how do you come up with the star rating for a fund? Um, no one actually comes up with a star rating. It, it is a purely quantitative exercise. Uh, it is an algorithm that mm-hmm. comes up with the star rating. The star rating takes into account historical returns and downside volatility. And it weighs that over three years, five years, and since inception or 10-year returns or whatever. Um, I don't remember the exact weights that each of those, uh, each of those time periods are, uh, get. Mm-hmm. And then every fund within its category, so all Canadian equity funds, are ranked. The top 20% of those funds will get a five-star rating. Mm-hmm. The next 20% will get a four-star and so on and so forth. So the star rating is a purely quantitative exercise. It's a ranking within the fund's category. Mm -hmm. Um, That's at the core what a star rating is. And when it comes to figuring out what category a fund is uh, in, is there any gray areas? Because sometimes you have managers who have mandate creep, for example, and sometimes they wander outside their lane a little bit. How do you you monitor that and say, uh, okay, well, you are billing yourself as a Canadian focus fund or whatever. But we notice that you got 30% holdings in the U.S. now uh, or whatever, it, which may not fit the original criteria. Is that something that's also actively monitored and do you reslot them into a different category? How does that work? Yes. So they are, uh, are they, uh, do we monitor it and do we reslot them? Yes. There is a committee called the Canadian Investment Fund Standards Committee. Uh, it is comprised of the database providers in Canada. So Morningstar, Reuters, uh, Globe Fund, uh, well, Reuters and Globe Funds are the same, uh, Fund Data, mm-hmm. um, Canex. I represented Morningstar on the CIFSC, uh, so I have some familiarity. So every little while, we run the analysis on each one of these funds, all the funds in the Canadian industry, because 
these database providers have underlying holdings data mm-hmm. for all of them. Right. So, and I'm talking about mutual funds in this case, not not other mutual funds and ETFs. Mm-hmm. And through that, we can see whether a fund has creeped over to a different category or not. And in that case, they are recategorized. Right. In other case, in other cases, fund companies are quite proactive. Mm-hmm. So, suppose company X has decided that. Um, the, this equity fund that they have, which used to be all Canadian equities, is now going to hold, as you said, some North American. Um, and it's going to be about 30 to 40%. Well, that would then, the CIFSC would look at that and say, well, this is going to change and that will no longer fit in the pure Canadian equity category. That should now be in the Canadian-focused equity category. And and if they do that, if they, they switch their mandate or creep uh, across the lines, does that then throw out their existing star rating if they had one because now you don't have five-year, three-year, ten-year periods to look at in that category because now it's a different category. Um, kind of. Okay. Uh, there's not a clean way to do that. So th- right. there are a few constraints for the star rating. One is uh, the one you just mentioned where it, the existing historical returns get ported over. Right. Um, now Morningstar has spent done a lot of work on how to restrict that and how to... Uh, work with that and and i don't have a good answer um the other is if a manager changes so suppose one manager's been managing the fund for uh, 20 years and and this this person retires and the new manager has a similar but still slightly different philosophy in managing the fund in that case the star rating still incorporates that previous manager's Mm. record um, so it doesn't, it isn't able to, to deal with that because it is a purely quantitative exercise. So you alluded to originally when you mentioned the star ratings that people shouldn't rely on that solely as their only point yeah. of adjudicating a fund. So how would someone properly use a star rating? What, what do they use that information to do? Like it's part of the quiver, but tell me how that fits in into their overall decision process. Yeah. A star no one data point is a good ex- is a good um, one silver bullet to to figure out whether you should or should not buy a fund. Right, and that's why Morningstar has a fund analyst team. The fund analyst team rates funds on gold, silver, bronze, neutral, negative, and that's a more qualitative process that takes into account the five P's as as we refer to them at Morningstar. Um, one being the people. Uh, is it a, is it managed by a tenure team or, or person? Do they have the the facilities and the background to to do what they say they're doing? Then there's the parent, which you're looking at the firm whether the investment company aligns its interests with that of the underlying fund holders. Right. That's a huge component of of looking at whether you should or should not invest in a fund. You want to have good stewards mm-hmm. of investor capital. Um, then there's the process. Are they consistent? You, you talked about creep in in a fund. So you want to look at that. Is Are there holes in the process? Do they say that they're going to invest in funds with high cash flow generation, but in reality, they're investing in negative cash flow companies. These are things that, <laughs> that happen, unfortunately. Right. And, and you can 
and an experienced professional can glean pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then there's price. Is it cheap? It, it's that simple. It's the only thing you know of an investment ahead of time is is how much you're going to pay for it. You don't know how much you're going to make in returns over the next five, 10 years, but you know how much you're going to pay for it over the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and last and, and to a lesser degree is performance. And, and that what the analyst team is trying to measure is whether the performance is consistent with that process. Right. If if a manager claims to be buying what are known as value stocks, and all of a sudden you look at their performance and they're shooting the lights out and, and a very and they're buying all these technology companies and all these uh, companies that probably aren't considered value, quote unquote. Um and then you can look at their performance with a fair degree of skepticism. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are some of the things that investors should be looking at. They shouldn't just be looking at the star rating. The star rating is one metric that they can use, but um, but use it in conjunction with with a qualitative assessment as well. And and um, and I think you're much much better served that way. So I think this is a good jumping off platform into the stewardship grades that Morningstar um, has. And you were uh, instrumental in that. Uh, You're heavily involved in that process. Can you explain to me what the stewardship grade process is? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so um, for, as I mentioned, stewardship grades, uh, when you're judging stewardship, you're assessing whether a fund company's interests are aligned with those of the investors, Mm -hmm. right? And there's a few things that you can look at to see whether that's the case or not. At the most basic, it's transparency. Is a fund company only doing the bare minimum, what the regulators require them to do, or are they going above and beyond what they uh, they're mandated to do. Can you uh, can you give me an example of that? So I I I'm not putting you on the spot here, but mm-hmm. can you give me an example of you know a bare minimum requirement and how many firms may just offer that, but then an example of what would be going above and beyond that for the client? Yeah, sure. Um, communication, right? So investment companies and fund managers are required to do twice a year. An MRFP, Management Report of Fund Performance. Performance, yeah. 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 Sorry, forget the acronym. There's so many <laughs> yeah, bloody acronyms yeah, in this business. Right. I can't keep track of them all. Yeah. Um, and, and that is supposed to be written by fund managers. Uh, it is not often written by fund managers. Right. It's, it's really outsourced to someone else who... <laughs> a, a journalism major or uh, or someone who's familiar with investing uh, that writes it up and and it's signed off by the PM. Right, yeah. But that's the minimum requirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're looking at at SETI, at Morningstar, what we were looking at is do, um, do these fund companies communicate 
more than that. And when they're communicating, even in this MRFP, are they just talking about basic stuff that people could find in a newspaper? Mm -hmm. Or are they actually giving investors real insight into what's going on in the fund? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it it would surprise you, Preet. More often than not, there was no insight into it. It was the fund is up X percent or a fund is down X percent. The benchmark is blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, yeah. We bought this and we bought that. I know all about that. Um, I I know that uh, there are a lot of firms that basically say to compliance, all right, what's the minimum that we need to put on this thing so that we don't get our wrist slapped? And they're like, oh, we'll just put this, 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 and that. All right, done. Someone signs it off and whatever. Right? So it's almost seen as this is something I have to do. Um, and there are very few fund companies that would, uh, sort of say, okay, well, let's actually use this as a tool to our advantage as opposed to just a compliance requirement. Yeah. And, and when you're, when you're conveying uh, information to investors, is it full of jargon? Mm-hmm. Cause that's something that plagues our industry. Sure. Jargon filled, confusing acronyms, <laughs> acronyms. I mean, I've been, I've been doing this. I've I studied this in university. I've been doing this since, uh, the start of 07. And yet there are times where I open up marketing, open up marketing documents for fund companies. And I think, what the heck are these guys doing? I can't, I can't understand any of this. It's just buzzwords that they're thrown together in a paragraph. Right. Um, So are, are these fund companies in in transparency and communication, are they conveying more than what's required and are they conveying it in a way that's easily understood by the, by the end investor? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's surprising how few uh, how few do that. Um, the other things, and just while we're on stewardship, is is um, management stability. Are the are the portfolio managers turning over every six months or a year? Is there a stable team there that's looking after your funds? Fund size, as it's counterintuitive, but the bigger a fund gets, the less likely it is to outperform a benchmark or, sure, yeah. or a threshold because it, it can't help but look exactly like that benchmark. It's just holding too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many fund companies, unfortunately, don't close their funds to the detriment of existing investors. Right. Because right? they're thinking about the bottom line, which is more assets, more More, more assets, money. more revenue. Yeah. Ex- exactly. So, so you look at that, you look at co-investment. Our investor, our portfolio managers, and the rest of the management in an in an investment firm, are they invested alongside the investors? Uh, and this was a particularly rough battle for for Morningstar because most fund companies were quite reluctant to do so. Hmm. They didn't want to disclose it. There were some that have no problem doing it. They're very proud of what they're doing and. Not surprisingly, those are the really good investment firms. Right. But the ones that have something to hide right. were, were trying to push. You don't us. expect me to invest in this fund, do you? Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, and, and then last but not least, fees. Right. Fees is important. Fees is, like I said, what you know about an investment before. Uh, uh, it's the only thing you know about an investment ahead of time. So um, so those, and uh, the process was... Throughout the year, as we were looking at funds, uh, we would also be asking questions related to stewardship to get some insight. You can't just understand how good a steward an investment firm is through one meeting or a questionnaire or whatever. Right. You have to you have to keep the dialogue going and 
There's little insights you get from each person you speak to at an investment firm and not just the portfolio managers, the sales team, how they're compensated. Mm-hmm. Are, are they making money? Of fa- are they making fat commissions every dollar that comes in or is it a more thoughtful compensation structure than that? Um, how is the CIO compensated? Are they compensated on performance or are they compensated on assets? You know, there, there's things like this that you, you have to go beyond the investment personnel. You have to go to the management of the firm, the executive suite, the salesperson, the traders, uh, the most fulsome picture you can get of an investment firm. So with these stewardship grades, you grade them just like uh, someone at school. You have like A's through F's, I'm assuming? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And is it is it a normal distribution? Like, is it a bell curve of grades? How does that work? No, it's, it's not a bell curve. Um, the average stewards, uh, each section, so there's three sections in stewardship rating. There's corporate culture, Actually, there's four sections. There's corporate culture, manager incentives, fees, and then regulatory history. Mm-hmm. Um, corporate culture has a certain weighting to it, and the other two, uh, other three have, have their own weightings. And so you aggregate the score and you get a final score. Mm-hmm. So it's not, a, it's not a bell curve. But an average steward would, would get a C. Right. Um, but... In our inflated grading system that, that many accuse North America of having, <laughs> investment firms would get really upset if they got a C, even though that meant that they were doing just fine. But right. they would take it as a real insult. They say, everyone thinks they're the best, right? It's, it's just human nature. Uh, and unfortunately, they, they are not. So, right. so we'd have to have many difficult conversations. And that was, uh, as one of the, the leaders of the team, that was one of my responsibilities was to deal with executives from various Canadian investment firms <laughs> and explain to them why they're, not they're top, average. They're not type A alpha people at all. Oh, they? no. <laughs> our, in, our industry is not full of those kind of characters at all. They're all very docile. I and bet calm. you've got some stories that you just can't tell. <laughs> I have many stories I can't tell. Yeah, um, okay. So, so this is interesting. So you mentioned that, you know, everyone thinks they're better than average. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about active investment management. So we've got all these guys who are active managers that are trying to outsmart one another, mm-hmm. but they all can't be smarter than everyone else. Yeah, that's right. And so how do you how do you reconcile how do you reconcile that with the the current milieu which is a lot of people are gravitating towards listen. Um, we know that you can identify past uh, outperformance in the past. That's easy, right? It's all there. But no one seems to be able to find a way to identify those top performing managers who will outperform on a go forward basis. So how do you respond to that? Because that seems to be, um, you know, something that is uh, really growing in popularity, passive indexing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you see that whole discussion? Like, how, what's your point of view on that? Yeah, well, at Steady Hand, we are active managers. Yeah, um, uh, we have a very well-defined philosophy. We built concentrated portfolios. We don't care about the benchmark. Um, and I think the benchmarks are important in that conversation. So uh, let's put aside active passive for a sec. Sure. Let's say you arrive to Canada from Mars. Okay. You know nothing about investing. Mm-hmm. And I'm building a portfolio for you. And I say, Preet, Great. Uh, I'm happy to do this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put about 35% of your portfolio in just financial stocks, okay? Just stocks in one industry, one sector. And another 35 to 40%, 
I'm going to put those in stocks that are really related to resources that are very volatile, that are related, that are in gold, energy, mining, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, your reaction would probably be, that's not a very well diversified portfolio. Right. And I think you'd be right. Mm-hmm. I think anyone looking, any investment professional that's honest with themselves would look at that portfolio and say, yeah, that doesn't make much sense. Zero healthcare, well, a little bit of healthcare with Valiant, um, and very little technology, very little consumer names. Really, you're in three or two sectors. Mm-hmm. And this is the Canadian market, This right? is the, the, what the we have in of, Canada. Yeah. yeah, so the benchmark is important. I agree with you about uh, the S&P 500. That's a really good benchmark, mm-hmm. and it's a really tough benchmark to beat. It's well-diversified. It's got a good mix of stocks, um, different economic drivers within that uh, within that index. That's not the case with most indices. And that's why we don't have a, a sole U.S. equity fund, because that's a market that is tough to beat. Um, but from a risk standpoint and a diversification standpoint, yeah, we have active managers in Canada. We think you need to have more than just uh, three sectors in your portfolio. The same applies for other other markets as well. So small cap is another example where it's mostly weighted in resource stocks. Again, like mm-hmm. 40 to 50% is just in, in resource stocks. Um, same applies for global countries where there's global small cap, there's emerging markets, which are somewhat inefficient markets. So, um, so... I, I would agree with a lot of the the conversations about active versus passive, but I think from a risk standpoint and a diversification standpoint, uh, a lot of those benchmarks and indices aren't good. Mm-hmm. So that that that's uh, that's how I would uh, I would refer to that. So just playing devil's advocate, because yeah. I'll, I'll say um, for a point of disclosure that I like the guys at Steady Hand. Um, I think that what they're doing makes a lot of sense in the context of all the active managers out there. I know you guys are kind of like the undex yeah, that's uh, right. investments. Trademark right? that. That's right. You got to pay us some money now, Preet. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you guys have a pretty good business model that's filling a niche that needed to be filled. And I think that's great. But playing devil's advocate. Yeah. So what you've given is sort of your version as to why your style of active management is better than the next guy. Right. And so the next guy is going to come along and say, well, no, 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 here's our thesis and it's better than theirs. Right. And so how do you know, like, how does the uninformed, uninitiated decipher all these different pitches? Like, well, here's why our active strategy is better than the other guy, because everyone sounds compelling. Uh, I think the same applies for not just active, but passive, too. Right. So even with passive, you have numerous benchmarks that people use it's not really passive, but you've got these strategic beta funds sure. that are out now too. You've got, I, I think your your question doesn't just have to do with active or passive. It's the investment industry across the board. You've got tons and tons of investment vehicles out there that people are scratching their head thinking, what the hell do I do? Mm-hmm. What What is an average Joe supposed to buy? And I think that's, I, I agree with your uh, with that devil's advocacy approach. And for that, I would say stewardship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think stewardship is the important thing when you're aligning yourself with any fund company, because you want to make sure that again, interests are aligned. If someone claims um, their 
their secret sauce is the secret sauce, mm-hmm. yet they're putting zero dollars towards it. You can have a, <laughs> y- you can be sure that they don't, they're not, um, they don't believe it. Right. Oh yeah. Well, the BS detector is like beep beep. That's beep. right. <laughs> That's right. When is someone going to invent the BS detector? Uh, I've got one. Yeah. Just kidding. I'm mm-hmm. BSing you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> um, okay. So let. Um, Let's talk about steady hand because we kind of skipped the transition from how you went from Morningstar to steady hand. Yeah. So I presume you you gave steady hand an A in stewardship, and they said, "Hey, we like this guy. Come work for us." Is that basically how it went down? Or uh, God, I hope not. <laughs> well, if it is, then that's great career advice for anyone who wants to work for good investment companies. Is work for Morningstar, give good stewardship grades to the investment company you want to work for, and then go for it. Um, no, well, it, it had something to do with with my time at Morningstar. Certainly, I, I got to know the folks at Steady Hand um, because I used to cover their funds yeah. and uh, through the stewardship process, of course. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, Tom Bradley, who's the co-founder of the firm, gave me a shout and wanted to see if I if I was up for coffee. And sure, I the true. The, the truth is I really wasn't, uh-huh. um, he knows this now, but <laughs> I was so busy with work that day. I, it was in the middle of stewardship season actually. Right. And I was in the middle of this, this rough, uh, report week. And, um, he asked if I want to go for coffee and I'm pretty sure I said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to just come up to the office and we can chat here? And, he's, and he said, no, no, we need to, we need to go out. <laughs> uh, anyways, we, we talked and, and there was a desire at steady hand to, to build, an investment team uh, for a long time. Tom has been doing it on his own. Right. Um, we use sub advisors at Steady Hand, so we outsource that investment management function really um, to managers that we think are good that follow our investment philosophy and, like I said, are good that are, like us. I think are good stewards of investor capital. Mm-hmm. And um, and given my background in researching investment managers, it was a it was a decent fit. Tom and I uh, have similar views on on the investment industry, mm-hmm. uh, so I guess that was a good fit too. And, and so you're both targeted, hated men. <laughs> I think he more than I, but uh, <laughs> but he's he's also got 20 more years uh, uh, on the street than I do, right? And we both have a love for basketball, so that was the that was the the cherry on. Who it. were you rooting for in the uh, finals NBA? You know what? I uh, neither. Okay, I, I can't. I think one of the reasons I don't like Golden State, it, it has nothing to do with the team. They play fantastic basketball. My God. They, Can't deny that. Oh, man. Their ball movement, and people say they've got depth, but they've created that depth. They trust not just their starters, their bench, and the bench behind their bench. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't like Golden State fans. I can't... <laughs> I can't... I can't get behind Golden State fans because far too many of them don't know who Chris Mullen is. Right. And Chris Mullen was the Golden State Warrior for, for ages. So right. it, it I, I've had this conversation with with fans. Maybe I'm just looking for beef, but uh, <laughs> but I've had that. But at the same time, even with the Cavs, I, I everyone loves to hate LeBron and I fall into that category. Right. Yeah. But man, I, I love to watch those I loved watching those teams go at it. And that was a phenomenal final. I mean, that was, they just slugged it out. That was, that was something else. You have to tip your hat to, to LeBron and Kyrie for, for their performance. They are fantastic basketball players. And because 
I wasn't in love with both teams. I was just enjoying the the slugfest. Yeah, it was it was it was great watching. It so was great speaking watching. of mandate creep. <laughs> All right, let's let's get back to so you're talking about you were you were having coffee with Tom. Yeah. And uh so uh let's pick the story back up from there. Well, no, we we had uh, mutual interests and and you know, we went through a process after that. There were obviously other people that were interested in the firm uh, in the position. Um and uh, over a few months, we got to know each other and went down to Vancouver, met the team. Um, and yeah, in, in December 2014, I, I was offered a job to, to join Steady Hand and return to Vancouver, where I, right. where I grew up. So you were in Toronto at, at Morningstar. Yeah, I was And then based. moved to Vancouver. That's right. And, and January 2015 was a really fun month because I resigned from Morningstar. Mm-hmm. I got married mm-hmm. and um, packed and moved across the country to Vancouver. How many pairs of underwear did you bring with you? At that time, I think I had six. Wow. Yeah, double. I'm an, <laughs> Almost a I'm full a big week. boy now. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, and and uh, started a new role and new journey at Steady Hand. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, now one of the things that we talked about was uh, client behavior. So you mentioned that a little bit when you were uh, working at Mercer, you know, uh, and I imagine part of the process when, when um, you know, uh, someone who's uh, entrusting you with uh, the management or advice on their, their pensions for their companies and whatnot, sometimes when things are going bad, sometimes they feel that they have to be seen to be doing something, right? <laughs> so they go against advice. Is that kind of what the story was or why, why, was, why was behavior getting in the way of even, you know, committees, Pension investment management yeah. committees. How how would that get in the way of professionals? Um, it, it comes. It gets in the way of professionals because we are hardwired. I think so. It, there's two things. One is we are hardwired to pay attention to noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and second is I, I think the investment industries is structured in a way that encourages bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is turn on TV. And at any point in time, there is someone on BNN or Bloomberg or whatever, pick your poison. Um, there is someone telling you why you shouldn't be in the market. Right. It's China. <laughs> it's Europe. Yeah. It's uh, Greece. It's the Fed. Who knows? There's always a reason. And we can't help but listen to these otherwise smart people giving us advice. They're accomplished individuals who have reached the height of their industry and that their profession, and you'd be you'd be crazy not to listen to them, right? Oh, the best, the best though, is when you've got a portfolio manager saying gold is going to five thousand uh, an ounce. Mark my words. And then later that day, another guy says gold's worthless. Right? Same channel, same day. Yeah. Completely polarized uh, opinions, and uh, again, type A personalities think they're smarter than the next guy. So yeah, tons of noise. Tons of noise. And then there's other reasons too. Uh, we talked about the product proliferation in our industry. Oh my God, yeah. Right? There's, I, I worked at Morningstar, so I, I have a rough idea. There's twelve more than 12,000 mutual fund share classes in Canada. Mm-hmm. That's a crazy number. It's more than there are stocks. Yeah, it is ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I'm including share classes of one fund. So yep. let's say RBC Bond has... Maybe A five, class, ten, class, C yeah. class, D class, E class, F class. It is an absurd number of an investor trying to go through that uh, that database to find the right fund for them is 
difficult. Mm-hmm. It is really hard. And so I, uh, I understand it. I understand why that would be the case. And so there's all this product proliferation. And then there's a jargon that I talked about. It's easy to be impressed by someone using big words who on the TV is talking in fancy economic terms mm-hmm. and, and uh, using all this financial jargon. You can't, you think they know what they're talking about. It's, it's easy to. And the investment industry pushes what's hot. Mm-hmm. If U.S. stocks have done well over the last uh, three, four years, guess what most fund companies are going to be launching? Right. Yeah, it's going to be U.S. funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't help it. And the incentives have a big part to do with it. Many people in the investment industry and and financial, many financial advisors, most financial advisors are incentivized to sell you product. They mm-hmm. make money um, if you buy funds, right? If you if you buy and sell, they, they need for that to happen. So there's an incentive structure in place that promotes you into making bad decisions. Right. Um, so I think I think those two reasons uh, have a lot to do with it. It's it's how we're wired, and then it's how the investment industry is is built, and how we're compensated, and how we talk, and all the people that we listen to. So what you're saying is that people need a steady hand. That's where the name comes from. <laughs> that's that's actually where the name comes from. I, I know a lot of people think the name is corny, and uh, and yeah, maybe it is, but um, but that's that was the thinking behind steady hand is is to provide people that, as you said, that steady hand through the difficult times. And and we do that by communicating very frequently with our investors. And it's, um, some of our clients tell us we, we're maybe too transparent. And, <laughs> and I don't think there's a thing. There's such a thing as being too transparent. I'm very proud of the way we communicate with our clients. We try to keep it jargon-free. A layperson can understand what we put out. Um, so we spend a lot of time communicating with our uh, with our with our clients. We are aligned with our investors. Ninety on average, ninety percent of of SteadyHand employees' wealth is invested in SteadyHand fund, and not in different fee structures. Not in, no, it's in the same exact vehicles that our investors are invested in. Right. Maybe maybe talk a little bit about what is unique about steady hand funds because I think someone hearing about steady hand for the first time may not realize what makes it kind of different from all the other fund companies out there. Uh, I, I'd say there's I think there's a few different things. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the way we we offer our funds to investors. So we cut out the middleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Investors open up their RSP, their TFSA, their investment accounts. They open them up directly with us. And that helps us in a couple of ways. One, it allows investors to have direct access to someone who's invested in the same funds that they are. So when you when you have a problem or let's say you panic a little because of the Brexit situation that happened last week, um, if you pick up the phone and you call SteadyHand, you're going to get someone who has been with SteadyHand for many years, is a very experienced investment professional that can talk to you about what's going on. They're up to speed on it because their money is invested with them uh, in the city, in the same funds. Um, we also control the message that way. So we, we keep costs low we, because we get rid of the middle person. And, um, 
And that allows us to manage client behavior. We can manage expectations that way. You don't have someone who doesn't know about the funds telling you why it's a good fund. You have people who live and breathe this stuff telling you. When you say you cut out the middleman, I think maybe drill down on that. Who's the middleman? The, the middleman in this case would be, would be a financial advisor. Um, we have our in-house financial advisors who help invest, who help our investors set up an investment plan. So, so they understand their risk profile. They set them up with a, with a mix of how much stocks, how much they need to have in bonds, and then help them buy those those funds at steady hand. So, so we keep that all in house, um, and that allows us to control the message and 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 do quality control. Yeah. So, uh, just for for the listeners out there, so it's you know you're direct to client. That's and right. so if you look at all the other mutual fund companies out there, 95% are, are distributed through financial advisors who uh, you open an account with, you know, a big bank, an independent or whatever, and they have a pick of 12,000 funds to pick from. They go to steady hand and you've got what, five funds, six funds? We've got six funds, six one, funds. Of, one of them being a money market fund. Yeah. Right. So there's six to choose from um, and you don't have an advisor, like a financial advisor that you meet with. You deal directly with, with steady hand. And so one of the benefits of that, I'm assuming, is that you cut out the cost of That's right. compensating yeah. the financial advisor. And if you can reduce costs, you improve returns, all mm-hmm. other things being equal. So that's that's kind of unique. And um, you also, your, your investment strategy, so you know, we talked about the stewardship and we talked about undexing and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So what sets apart uh, you know, this, this relatively light fund lineup? You know, it's very simple. Um, you've got six funds to choose from, not twelve thousand or what have you. Yeah. Uh, what? Why? Why do you do that? What are the advantages of the steady hand approach? It's simple. It, it, it's it's that easy. It is simple. I mean, what you talked about earlier about an invest investor. Let's say an investor goes to RBC. There's numerous Canadian equity funds that a person can choose just at RBC. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we just that's more confusion. Um, we think investors need to be focused. So so our portfolio managers build. I mentioned this a bit earlier, but um, they build concentrated portfolios. So mm-hmm. um, so the, not five hundred stocks. In no, not five hundred <laughs> stocks. Our our equity fund holds about twenty five stocks. Mm-hmm. Now they're still diversified across industry, across economic exposures, across. Um, depending depending on which fund, but uh, it would also be across regions. Um, so it allows funds to be lean. They're investing in just the best idea. Their top twenty five best ideas in this case, not their. It doesn't include their worst uh, fifty best ideas in there. So <laughs> it, it's crazy to me. Where, where when I was with Morningstar, I, I talked to some fund managers, and they'd say, "Yeah, you know, we are." Top buy list is about uh, 15 stocks, and uh, our portfolios hold, hold 300. <laughs> How do you reconcile that? How do you decide which one of those, um, which 295 to, or 285 and to throw in And as you said, there? I mean, at that point, you might as well just get the index if you're yeah, exactly. much buying everything. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, so we keep our funds very concentrated, but still very diversified across industry and different economic exposures. And... Um, uh, and because we cut out the middleman, it also helps keep costs low. I think the the fee structure is is one of the most unique, if not 
it's probably the most unique structure that Steady Hand has. No one else I know has this structure. It is unique. So there's two components to it, right? So there's a longevity bonus That's or, right. or discount, I should say. The longer you're with Steady Hand, there's a discount. Um, and there's also uh, a tiering based on assets. So the more you have invested, the lower the ongoing cost as well on a percentage basis. That's right, yeah. And so that your fund's is unique. Yeah, So and the idea is simple. We save money the longer you're invested the grower the the bigger your account grows and we want to pass on those savings to you it, it's it what we're, what steady hands trying to do is tilt the balance from being in favor of investment companies more to the investor mm-hmm. uh, and the cost structure is one way we do that we we try to pass on as many savings as we can and so yes that longevity if you're if you've been an investor for 5 years you get 7% off your fees of your entire fees, if you're an investor for 10 years or more, 14% off your fees. And that's sizable saving for for investors. And mm-hmm. and for as your account grows, whether it's through the market or whether you're adding money, you get you get savings through that as well. So so it ends up being a I think it ends up being a really good structure for investors and and really tilts it in their favor. In the uh, in the vein of uh, disintermediation where uh, cutting out the middleman um, is occurring. Um, so you guys have done that. We've got this wave of robo-advisors, which are, if you take a big step back, doing basically the same thing, right? They're cutting out the middleman. You're going directly to a robo-advisor. They, uh, they set up your contributions, put up a, a portfolio for you. And certainly the traditional financial advisor model is threatened by this. Uh, I was just having coffee with an advisor this morning and all they were talking about was, what do I do next? How do I compete with this? Et cetera, et cetera. Totally nervous about it. Um, trying to figure out uh, how the industry can evolve, how their industry is going to evolve. How has that wave of robo-advisors affected Steady Hand? Uh, I don't, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, it hasn't really affected us uh, so far. Uh, we're rooting for the robo-advisors. We think, we think a lot of what they do is is really good. Um, I'd say, actually, that opinion is more for some of the U.S. robo-advisors, though, the Wealthfront and mm-hmm. Betterment in the States. Uh, I really like the way they interface with their clients mm-hmm. and and some of the communication they put out to their clients is, is fantastic. It's something that we'd be proud to write and we, we take a lot of pride in, in our writing in the first place. So, so I think some of what the robo-advisors are doing is really good. Um, but I think there are some there are some things that that worry me about the robo industry as well. Um, you talked about not being a uh, not being an intermediary between uh, getting rid of the middleman. I worry the robo advisors will become the middleman, and mm-hmm. you see that with with the robo offering at BMO. Mm-hmm. Right, they're offering BMO funds through their robo. Um, mm-hmm. So. And their relationship that other robo firms in Canada have with investment firms as well. So I worry that that's that they will become the intermediary. Um, but there's some other things that that when I look across the Canadian landscape, oh, what do we have? Fourteen firms now, maybe a couple more going to be like added a new tomorrow. One every month, yeah, right? it's it's <laughs> it's becoming saturated. But uh, I, I'm worried because I don't think they're always always very transparent. So. What you see on there, uh, I'm generalizing here. Sure. So there are some really good ones, and there are some ones that aren't very transparent. But they talk about the fees uh, that they're charging, but seldomly do they talk about the fees 
of the underlying product that they're right. investing in, whether it's mutual funds or ETFs. So yeah, you're paying, let's say 0.5% for whatever, for this robo service, but you're also paying more for the, the underlying funds. And that can really vary depending on who you go with. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is, I, I worry that they're building some of these firms to sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, there's an end game and it's not to necessarily to help investors fulfill their investing goals. It's to sell to the, the highest bidder. Sure. And um, that worries me. But, uh, and then there's the, the there's the aspect of, of assessing risk. So some talk about, you know, it takes five to 10 minutes to fill out a risk questionnaire. Well, filling out risk questionnaires is, is not actually great. Uh, a person can fill out the same risk questionnaire very differently when a market's doing good yeah. and when it's doing bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, I think it takes time. It takes, I, I hope it takes more than 10 minutes to assess your debt situation, whether you plan on putting this money aside to buy a house in a couple of years, where in which case it probably shouldn't be invested in the market, um, whether you have elderly parents that you need to take care of with this money. Um, uh, it takes time to find it, whether you ha- you've had bad experiences in investing, right? Now, a lot of people are, are conservative because they've had a bad experience and, and you need to reconcile that. Um, so I, I worry about that, but perhaps what I worry about the most is, uh, the service's inability to reconcile what the risk profile is and what it should be. Mm-hmm. So suppose an investor fills out this survey. Let's say this investor is 25 years old and they fill this survey out and it puts them in a conservative bucket. They invest in, uh, let's say, 80% bonds, 20% stocks. Um, sure, that's fine, but this person is 25 years old. They've got 40 years until they probably retire. They shouldn't be in this bucket. And and what we would, and it's, it's really a disservice to them to be in that, in that, uh, in that investing profile. So what, what study hand does and what I think good investment firms do is they would take a step back and say, okay, well you, f- you think you're conservative, but this is where um, education comes in. Mm-hmm. This is where we, we'd help investors reconcile that they actually should be a little further up the risk spectrum where where they've got 40 years to retire. They can take a little on a little more risk on that volatility, though it's not great over the short term and it makes people nervous for younger folks, for younger folks listening, when the market is down, that is a great time for you to if you if you're not already invested, invest at that point in time. Market's on sale. Yeah, market's on sale. So so that's that's the kind of thing that unfortunately Robo can't do, and I worry there's going to be this this wave of investors thirty years from now or whenever or whenever they retire that don't have enough money because some of these services haven't been able to reconcile that aspect that they should have been that their needs actually require them to take on a little more stock risk. That's a, it's an interesting point. I just did a video for the Globe and Mail kind of giving advice to young investors. And it basically said, you know, when you're just starting out, you should probably 
uh, with some caveats, experiment with a 100% equity portfolio because if you're starting from zero, your monthly contributions are going to vastly outweigh the monthly fluctuations, right? You don't feel it until the principal invested is large enough that the fluctuations start to be the same size as how much you're putting in per month. Then you kind of start to get a little bit nervous. And until then, you can use that opportunity to train yourself to see how you uh, react over the course of a full market cycle and whatnot. And if you can stomach that and set yourself up to be a more successful investor that can stick to a plan over the long haul, you're doing yourself a real service. Um, the second thing that I wanted to point out, and it's the question I've asked, uh, I think I asked Randy Cass, uh, this one from Nest Wealth, uh, which is a robo-advisor. I can ask you the same thing because you talked about uh, possibly one differentiator that you can go in and identify that. Uh, you know, maybe there's a mismatch in the risk that they identify and what they should have. Um, but hey, what It's not ab- easy, yeah. But, but, yeah. but what about, um, you know, someone who isn't saving as much as they could? So, for example, you know, if you um, go to, let's say, a robo-advisor and you've decided, you know what, I've done some research, um, I'm a natural saver and whatnot, and it's time for me to invest, and I've heard that I should be with a robo-advisor or whatever. So you put money in, you've decided yourself that 100 bucks a month is fine. Is that enough, right? Maybe it's not. Maybe you need someone to push you to say, listen, you actually need to be investing $300 per month because you're not going to hit your goals um, if you're just hoping on a high rate of return. So how how does anyone do that if they're a step removed, right? Because your clients, I'm sure some of them come into the office in Vancouver, but you've got clients all around the country. That's right. Yeah, we've got a we've got an office in Toronto too. Yeah. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah. But how do you how do you do that? And how do you? Um, so one of the 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 benefits of you know financial coach, financial advisor, whatever. Sometimes they can find someone who isn't saving at all and get them to save for the first time. Like, how do you quantify the value of getting someone to actually start saving for the first time? And specifically to you, when you've got someone who's signed up, how do you go and say, okay, you know what? Now it's time for you to invest twice as much per month or whatever. How do you do that? Um, We work a lot with fee-for-service financial planners. Okay. Yeah, and money coaches. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they, we are part of the investment plan. Yep. That's what we would do. Right. But what you're saying is the financial plan is the financial yep. plan. And there's so, I think there's a lot of, uh, that is worth a lot, um, putting you on track. And, um, that's where we get a lot of our clients from actually is, is these independent fee for service financial planners. For those who don't know that industry, these are, these are folks who, who you pay an hourly rate or a fixed rate to build you a comprehensive financial plan how much you need to save, how much you'll have, how much Insurance, you need to retire. estate planning Insur- considerations, all that stuff. Yeah. Precisely. Um, and they're specialists. They're really good at what they do. Uh, they're not worried about mutual fund sales or insurance sales. Um, the people we work with wouldn't have those designations. They wouldn't be um, qualified to sell that stuff. Um, they'd be educated in it to know what they should be doing, but um, but they're independent. Mm-hmm. We, we really put a focus on that. And so... Where we come in is we are able to implement that financial plan. That's why it's a good marriage. It's, it's these financial planners spend a lot of time with, uh, with people and helping them figure out how much they need to save, whether they need to save more to retire or, or for their business or whatever it may be. Uh, but this is what their investment portfolio should look like. And where we come in is helping them build that asset mix, 
making sure their monthly purchases are actually what the financial planner says that they should be. Right. And uh, encouraging them to do that. We can't force anyone. Um, that's, uh, it'd be silly to say that, but, you know, we can definitely say, well, so-and-so has said that you need to have a monthly purchase plan in place for 500 bucks. You've <laughs> put down 50. So, 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 so what happens? Do you, do you like send a note to, to the teacher say, um, little Billy didn't put in their monthly contribution this month. Well, good financial planners are <laughs> in constant communication with them. So okay. they, they, it, it, many, um, those who have ongoing relationships with their, with their planners, um, our clients allow those planners to have a view of, the investments so that they'd give them uh, the ability to to have that viewership um so a financial plan could ease a financial planner could easily look at that person's portfolio and say hey you i told you that you need to be saving whatever a thousand bucks but you're only putting aside 150 uh let's uh, let's get back here right so okay. so we we work heavily with with financial fee-for-service financial planners and money coaches they're they do some great work, and we're really happy with um, with the partnership we've, we've developed there. Yeah, it's great. All right, so um, we're coming up to um, an, an hour. So holy smokes! I know time the flies time when by. you're having fun. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's go to our last topic, which is um, hamburgers. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. This is the only reason I did this podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. yeah. That's, uh, the financial flattering. stuff is just a bonus, really. <laughs> I want to talk about burgers. All right, so let's let's talk about because I am a huge oh, burger you and me aficionado. Both, you and me both. All right, so so let's let's see what you got. Tell me tell me where's what is your favorite burger on the planet? Oh, on the planet. Yeah, now you, that's a tough question. Why, why don't I start with Toronto? Okay, <laughs> so I was very lucky. I lived. Uh, right by Queen and Spadina for like three to four years. By the second Burgers Priest location. But it was in during the Burger Wars. Right, yes. Right. You had Burgers Priest there, BQM Burger, mm-hmm. um, Godfather Burger just down the street. Uh, I mean, uh, Bonmi Boys gets thrown into the mix though, even though it's not a burger place. <laughs> but but it was it was great. It mm-hmm. was fun. But my favorite burger joint, and it's not in Toronto, and I don't need to think twice about this, is is Holy Chuck. Big, big Bad Wolf Burger. It's delicious. If you haven't had it, it's further down the menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, they grilled a patty and some ballpark mustard. Oh, and they do the designs and everything with oh, the mustard, right? On the oh, grill. Yeah. And- it is fantastic. I've had it. Oh, it's so good. And you get that, you, you get the handcuff fries with it, and then you've got to chill out for five, 10 minutes. You got to let that sit. Yeah. You, you wait. And then you go back up to the counter and you get the Nutella and salted caramel milkshake. Right. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. <laughs> you're going to do it I so that you get, get a triple bypass, right? That's how you get the, the bacon fudge and sea salt okay. yeah. uh, milkshake. But we're on the same wavelength here, yeah. so that's good. So so I know Johnny Persoulis, the owner of Holy oh, yeah. Chuck, because I was going so often for a while. <laughs> yeah, that it's right? that, I'm that pathetic, right? Um, and now they've got multiple locations. Yeah. Uh, Burgers Priest, uh, Priest is another favorite. Um but what about American burgers? So, I mean, these are kind of American style burgers. Like mm-hmm. there's a, for those of you who don't know, there's like a differentiation between the, the traditional Canadian burger, which is like a much bigger patty. Um, like it's, it's, it's totally yeah. a two hand kind of affair for a traditional Canadian burger. But American burgers are tend to be smaller. And these burger joints that we've been talking about are specific in that they are griddled as opposed to grilled. So mm-hmm. it's a, a griddle is flat. 
Um, and uh, they also grind their meat daily, fresh, and all this stuff. So they, they, they take this stuff pretty seriously. And it was all sort of because of this American influence through In-N-Out, mm-hmm. Shake Shack, and whatnot. So of the American burgers, yeah. uh, what, are, what are your go-tos? My, are you an In-N-Out fan or you think it's overhyped? I, I think it's good. Um, Get out. But it was nice. It was nice to be on the podcast. Thank you. No, I, I like it. I, I'm not going to say I don't like it, but I prefer Petey's. Have you okay. Yeah. I haven't had Petey's. Petey's no. is in New York. Yeah. It's got a couple locations. It's in Astoria. It is, it is the original, uh, you know, that's the California style burger where yeah. you talk the in and out burger and Petey's is the same. Okay. It's, and it's probably nostalgia because I used to have it when I used to go for work or, right. or stuff like that. Um, but Petey's is my go-to. I, I love, and I love New York. So it's just, it's probably the whole experience of being in Manhattan, rolling around, um, checking out the sights and sounds and grabbing a Petey and, and enjoying that yeah. delicious. And, and, and it's a to- very West Coast style burger too. It's, it's very similar to In-N-Out in the way it's put together. It's got kind of that Thousand Island dressing right. sauce on it. Yeah. Um, it's great. Yeah, you know, I I love. I'm addicted to In and Out, and part of it is how do you based. get it here? Oh, you don't. Yeah, no. This is whenever I go to Vegas. Okay. Yeah. Uh, usually, what happens is which when is I go often to Vegas, apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what happens is I have a standard routine when I get to Vegas. Right, get in a cab, and I say we're going to In and Out first, mm-hmm. and then the hotel. Right. So we go through the drive-through in the cab, pick up the In and Out, then head to the uh, hotel. I know the In and Out that you're probably talking about as well. Just Everyone off the does. Strip. Yeah. Everyone yeah. knows. Yeah. They've got two. They've got a couple locations now. But in any case, um, so there's In and Out. Have you um, had Big Smash Burger? Have you had that? I did once a long time ago. Uh, and my brother used to live in Santa Monica, so I've done you know all the LA burger joints and whatnot as well. But I want to ask you about Le Burger at the Meridian in New York. Have you been there? No, I haven't. Okay, I haven't. so this is it's kind of an experience. So the way it works is so Le Meridian is a you know pretty upscale hotel, and there's this place called Le Burger, um, which is inside the hotel, but it is an absolute. I wouldn't say it's a total dive. But it's completely at paradox to sort of the upscale In lobby. the meridian. Yeah. yeah. And the way that you get to it is you go around the reception desk and there's this dark hallway that looks like it's, you know, a maintenance uh, closet or something. You go down this hallway and there are no signs. You turn a corner and it's your, you're like you're in a, a, a diner dive bar um, that is completely displaced. There's graffiti all over the place. It's cash only. There's a lineup. Oh, I love it. I and love it already. It, it, yeah, it just, it's so paradoxical because again, high-end hotel lobby. Oh yeah. And you just have to sort of know where to go, right? And uh, and fantastic burgers. Le Anyways, Burger? Yeah, Le Burger at the Meridian Hotel. Down. I'm writing this down. Yeah, it's fantastic. You should go. Anyways, um, so that's, <laughs> I don't know how many people care about this part of the conversation you, at all. This is probably, you know how you talk about the feedback? This is what you're going to be talking about next podcast. Right. Everyone's going to be talking about They're all going to have their tips. Part yeah. Oh, you got to go to this podcast. place. Yeah. And that's the thing. When it comes to stuff like this, people will say, oh, no, you got to try this burger place or whatever. And they think that they're burger aficionados, but they are not. Because every time that's happened in the past... I would go and say, man, this burger is awful. <laughs> Why would you stake your reputation on saying that this is a good burger? I, 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 mean, I know it's subjective, but I'm a burger snob. No, I, I, I'm with you. I, <laughs> I am a burger snob too. And and um, I now that I'm in Vancouver, I've been looking for that equivalent. Right. And 
and I have to concede, I haven't spent as much time finding the the equivalent of the the Holy Chuck or the BQM. Right. Um, but I hope one day, um, next time I'm on the podcast, I will be telling <laughs> listeners about the spots they need to go to in, in Vancouver. Vancouver. There's one Cannibal Cafe, which is pretty good. Um, I had to explore their menu a little more before I... Before yeah, what is I, that, like human meat? <laughs> They don't make that clear, so so I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. They're not big on transparency. No. Um, all right. So um, at the end of every podcast, yeah. uh, the guests have sixty seconds to give a commercial for whatever they want, cause, company that you work for, whatever you want. So the floor is yours. Um, if you want to, you know, tell people about Steady Hand or anything else you want to talk about, go to it. Well, I think investors, just anyone out there in the industry, should be looking at their investment statements um, this year. There's going to be something, I think, transformational in an industry, something called CRM2, where you're going to see the returns, or whether they're high or low, that you've had in your um, with your advisor or whoever you have your investments with. And you're going to see how much you've paid that advisor for the services. This is this doesn't include product costs. It just right. is the cost that, you, that you, the advisor has been compensated. And I think you should have a hard look at that and actually gauge whether you're getting your money's worth. It's crazy to me that in the in our investment industry, it's taken us this long to make it mandatory to disclose how much you've made and how much you've paid. Right. That is crazy. <laughs> so I hope investors, it's not a fun exercise to go through that statement, but I hope all investors do. I really do. I think... I think it's so important for investors. We, we see it all the time with people coming in who, where uh, they have no idea. And when they've asked their advisor or whoever they have their investment with, whether it's an investment counselor, whoever, um, how much they've made and how much they've paid, they are shocked. Yeah. They are shocked and appalled. And, and I think it's a real disservice that some of uh, the, uh, our investment industry um, has done. So, I would just encourage investors out there to to consider that. And last, I think invest. I hope investors just block out the noise. There's a lot of noise out there in the investment industry. Stick to your plan. If you and if you don't have a plan, give Steady Hand a call. We can help you through that. There you go. All right, Salman. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great. Appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, to my faithful listeners, if you enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a rating. It literally takes a few seconds, but means a lot for me. It helps me secure great guests like Salman. That's it for today. We will see you next time.